All right. Welcome to Advancing Possibility. Today is a very special day because I have a very special guest with me. This is uh, a very prolific author and well-educated rabbi, and um, he is an expert in crypto Judaism. He'll go on to explain to us what exactly that is, and he has multiple advanced degrees in the studies of Judaism. He is also an engineer by profession. So I'd like to welcome to the show Rabbi Juan Bejarano Gutierrez. How are you, Rabbi? Thank you so much, Art. Thank you so much, Art, for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. All right. So if you could please let our guests to the show know a little bit about yourself better than the way I explained it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I tell people that I, uh, I'm an engineer by day. That's what I do for a living, of course. Um, that's, that's what I do on a daily basis. Um, I'm very happily married to a beautiful wife. I've got three boys. And uh, at night, I, I, I'm a superhero. No, just kidding. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do my, my research, my writing, that kind of thing. And over a period of 15 years, I was able to study part-time at uh, three different Jewish institutions. <laughs> and uh, very early on when I was in uh, my undergraduate studies, I, I really had a passion for Judaism, but I felt, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do that full-time. So I, I did it sort of piecemeal. And um, I, I went on to several advanced degrees, as you mentioned, into rabbinic ordination. And then I focused in on, on what's called Sephardic history, uh, mm -hmm. history of the Jews of Spain and Portugal and, and the uh, Mediterranean area. And um, I, that sort of led to other areas of interest. And I've, I've continued that passion uh, since then. Mm -hmm. And why Jews in the specific area of Spain and Portugal particularly? Well, it's, uh, it's my family background. It's uh, family background of my parents. And it also is connected to other things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, uh, because of the unique history of, of the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula, um, Christianity has played a, a tremendous role uh, in that history, sometimes tragic, uh, sometimes beneficial. Um, and it seemed like a natural, uh, like a segue to a greater topic or greater uh, thoughts on the relationship between Jews and Christians historically. Okay. And it seemed just to fit perfectly. Okay. Um, and, and it bled into other areas, uh, you know, who is a Jew, what, what makes up Jewish identity. Um, and I think it's just sort of connected very easily to mm -hmm. that theme. And so what was it that led you to write your first, the first book that you wrote? And what was that book? Uh, the first book that I wrote was What is Kosher? Um, I, at the time I had just finished or I was finishing my dissertation and I had, um, it was called Secret Jews, which is a, a book on crypto Judaism and Sephardic history, but, uh, it was going through some editing processes and so forth. And I had some material that I, I wanted to put out and, um, I, you know, I didn't know exactly what would happen is if, if I were to publish. So I picked something that was relatively, I thought was simple. Mm -hmm. And um, I put it together and I, I said, I'm going to start with this and then I'm going to go through a series of uh, basic introductions to different Jewish topics. What is, what is kosher? What is Jewish prayer? Uh, what is Jewish thinking? And then when I got into that uh, mode, I just continued to come up with other titles. And then at the same time, I was finishing up the editing process for Secret Jews. And then I, that was like the first major work as far as length uh, was concerned. Okay. And what is Secret Jews? What is that about? So Secret Jews is based on my dissertation uh, at the Spurtis Institute, and the focus of it was on Jews in the Iberian Peninsula, in, in Portugal and Spain, that were forced to convert to Christianity at the end of the 14th century, 
And over a period of 100 years, there was uh, basically a crisis that occurred in uh, what we might say Spanish society, uh, to use a very general term, because these individuals formed like a fourth class of people. Uh, There were, of course, there were Christians, uh, Castilians and Aragonese and so forth. Uh, There were Muslims. Uh, there were Jews, and then there was this other class of individuals who were technically now Christian, but they were, you know, they continued to live in the same neighborhoods they had before. Uh, they still had uh, familial connections. They ate the same food, um, and many times they practiced Judaism secretly. And as a consequence, um, the church saw that as a very uh, serious threat um, and focused a lot of their attention on that because they said this is subversive. Uh, this is heresy. Um, and so the focus of the book was really to understand this, all this complex identity uh, between people living in multiple worlds. Um, and for me, the, the connection is so broad because you could argue that American Jews are living the same experience in many ways because we live in, of course, in the United States. But um, there's just a overwhelming Christian experience, a non-Jewish experience, and Jews in the United States are living in this complex world you know mm-hmm. what is their primary identity right. is it is it being jewish is it being american and uh, um at the time in in the 14th 15th 16th uh, century i think jews who were found in these circumstances were sort of asking the same thing you know am i am i a spaniard am i a jew am i you know what is it who am i right and uh that really i think uh, summarizes like my my focus is this this issue of identity Okay, that's great. And so, how was this book received when you published? Um, it got off to a, like a slow start because it's it was an academic work, and at the time, um, I had been um, I had submitted it to the Jewish Theological, excuse me, the uh, the Jewish Publication Society. It's it's a major uh, Jewish, probably the I think the oldest uh, publishing house in the United States that's focused on Jewish topics. Um, I spoke with uh, the head of it, and uh, he was extremely excited. And they have a very rigorous process that you have to go through uh, probably you know, two to three years, basically. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I sort of had this vision, like I, I did the research, um, I put this together, let's get it done and let's get it out the door. Um, and of course, you know, they're, they're a traditional publishing house, so they would do revisions and they would say, well, we want you to add this and we want mm-hmm. you to do that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it took like, a, I think it was basically a year and we were still in the initial stages. Wow. And um, they sent it out. For, yeah, so it was very, very extensive. And then uh, his name was Barry Schwartz. He said, uh, you know, you've done a tremendous job with this. And, you know, it's good enough to publish as it is, you know, but because we have uh, certain, you know, connections to the university, we have to have some, you know, things that are added. Mm-hmm. And so he basically said, you know, you've done a tremendous work. Why don't you give it a shot and do it by yourself? And in many ways, I think that was the best uh, advice that he gave me. And mm-hmm. then after learning uh, how to market it and how to develop it. Uh, it's, it's one of my top three uh, sellers. And um, I think people either know me because of that, or they know me because of the work that I do on uh, the Jewish background of Christianity or something like that. So it's, that's, it's one of the top three. So I've been very uh, happy with it. That's great. And that, and how long ago was that released? Uh, yes, it was released in 2016. And uh, for basically another year and a half, uh, it was, you know, fairly slow. And then at the end of uh, basically the middle to the end of 2018, that's really when things took off. And it was just uh, like a complete shock to me. Um, I tried different things that I had learned and I went from selling uh, 
you know, maybe a hundred copies uh, of several books in a month. Mm-hmm. Um, it started climbing to 200 and then 300 and then 500 and then 800. Wow. And then it just, you know, continued to be consistent. And, um, you know, it, it the, the market is complicated. It goes up and down, but it, mm-hmm. uh, in 2018, I think was, was the key uh, event or the time frame. And what would you attribute to that rise in sales? So Mark Dawson created a program called the self-publishing formula. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was 101 is the official title. And then he came up with other successive, you know, works to build on that uh, advertising for authors, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it was all based on his personal experience. Okay. Um, and I went through it slowly and, uh, you know, some of the things I have to be honest, I haven't been able to get to work, but some of the things that he said, you know, did have a tremendous impact. And I tried one site uh, that was called BookBub. Uh-huh. And I had never heard of it before. And uh, it's, I think it has something like 10, maybe 20 million subscribers. Wow. And you can advertise on the site. And uh, that was like the first, you know, boom. And then it just, it just uh, skyrocketed. And then I started adding other options like Amazon advertising uh-huh. and, uh-huh. you know, there are various smaller sites. And so now this platform, BookBub, this is like a social media site. Is it like a. What what is that? Well, BookBub is is basically uh, I don't know if you would call it a social media site, but it's specifically for readers that are interested in um, you know Kindle books. I mean, they also uh, give the links to paperbacks and hardbacks, but um, it's it was specifically uh, designed to send out lists. You know, oh, we have a new publication available by this author in this genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just very quickly became like the, the place to go to find new releases. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were known basically for like selecting the best of the best. Uh, so you would have to apply, you would uh, pay sometimes a large fee, and then they would feature you in their, uh, you know, daily release, like to this huge uh, email list. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was never guaranteed. And so then about the same time, they came up with an option to just advertise to their subscribers. Mm-hmm. So I, I decided that I wouldn't try the, the other process. I would just go directly and, and, and uh, advertise. Okay. And, and so when they send out these emails, your, you know, your little advertisement might come up and that's where the customers are, are, potential customers are coming across your book. Okay. So it's different from like a Goodreads, whereas there you leave more reviews about books that you've read. This one's more like actively promoting books. Yes, they, they do have an option for you to uh, follow uh, an author. Um, you have the option of leaving a review. But I think in many ways, from what I understand, is they really promoted or they began this idea of promoting actively to different genres um, and allowing you know, the, the author to say, I'm going to pick this author to, to follow as the model and I'm going to focus, you know, I want to reach those readers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could do the same thing on Amazon, but this was specifically for for readers. Yeah. You know, Amazon has, you know, so many different categories. Right. Uh, Goodreads, you know, it has a lot of reviews, but I, I think in many ways they had, they didn't develop that advertising element to it with the reading, but this was more focused on, this is what's out today. Um, you know, check it out. And, you know, you, you, you know, you can sign your own advertisement and that was sort of the, you know, the customization that you could give it. Okay. So now I, you know, I wrote a book last January or I, I published the book last January and it had been sitting on my hard drive basically in a rustic format for about 10 years. And then I came across you 
and I saw how prolific you are. And my wife was writing a book and I said, well, I'm going to beat her to the punch and I'm going to write my book before she does hers. And that's how it actually turned out. But still to this day, you know, a year has gone by and in that time you've published like a bunch of other books. So my question is, how is it that you, you have a family, you have a career, you, you, you know, you serve as a rabbi in multiple congregations. So how is it that you have the time to be so prolific? Uh, so from 2016 to 2019, I was a sales position and, you know, going to the airport, spending, uh, you know, several hours on a flight to Boston. It's a lot of time on your hands. And I think in many ways I took advantage of that. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, when I would get done with my meetings with customers, I would go back to the hotel and I would write. And then when I was back on the plane coming to Dallas, I would do the same thing. And, um, you know, I, I would do it during lunchtime. I would do it early in the morning. And I think that I had, um, I didn't like my job at the time. And so, you know, it was sort of the release, you know, to do something different that I did have, you know, circumstances that I was able to travel and then take advantage of that to do my writing. Okay. So sometimes I would go on a plane and I would have like a stack of, of papers. Um, and, you know, people would see me with, you know, hundreds of papers and I'm, you know, making notes and that, that kind of thing. And okay. uh, they would ask me what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that makes sense. But now, I mean, now you have a, you have a different position. You're working from your home and you're still prolific. So like, how is it that you managed to do that? Cause I know you have three young boys. It's a handful. How do you manage? Um, well, it is in many ways, I, I feel like I'm working more. Um, you know, I, I love this position that I'm in now as an engineer, but I, I do feel like I, I don't have as much free time. So a lot of the works that I've done recently, I did with the, the baby on one side <laughs> and I did it with typing one with one hand. Wow. And, and um, it became like a routine, you know, after five o'clock, uh, you know, I would daven, I would pray, uh, you know, I might eat or something or something like that. I'd, I'd be carrying the baby. And I would put like a video on for him. And then I would just, you know, type in with one hand. And, uh, wow. you know, if you do it enough, you, you'll get you something. Good, yeah. I mean, it might take you longer. But, um, <laughs> that's amazing. And I mean, it, and, and that, that was the thing, you know, I didn't want to, you know, um, what do you tell you? Take away time from, especially the baby, right? That's that mm -hmm. critical stage. Absolutely. And I wanted to help my wife, but mm -hmm. it's like I have this need to, to be creative and to write. And so what do you do? Well, do you, you know, if you have to put a pen in your mouth and you know, start uh, <laughs> typing, if you have to. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic because it, it, it takes away the excuses that people who might hear, oh, he wrote 35 books. He doesn't have anything to do. He's a rabbi. He has people who support him. You know what I mean? Like it breaks that concept that it's easy for you. And, you know, you're making it clear that it's through discipline and sacrifice that you can get things done. And that's, that's fantastic. I, I tried different approaches to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they have this Otter app, you know, where you can, you know, dictates, you know, you, you speak and it'll essentially yeah. make a transcript. I tried that, you know, as, as different options. You know, if I take a walk and I start talking. So mm -hmm. I, I looked at different options to see what would work. And in the end, <clears throat> that just, you know, sitting down with the baby was like the most practical for me. So I think, I think people have to experiment with what they feel is most comfortable for them. With what will work for them. Yes. So, so if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Um, I think that there's a, there's like a, there's a sort of a, a, I wouldn't say friction, but there's a, there's a balance between the creative side and then the marketing side. And what I mean by that is, 
you know, there, there's some people that are musicians and there's some people that paint, um, they're artists and, and they have to do that. Like if, if they don't paint, like in a certain number of days, they, they start feeling weird. I, I've actually had friends that, that do that. Yeah. Um, and I think part of me had the same kind of issue. Like I would write and if I didn't write, I, I don't know how to explain it. I just felt like I wasn't, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Um, but then in the process, because of, of a limited budget and, and just, you know, other practicalities, um, you know, I'm, I would edit it, I would have it proofread, et cetera, but inevitably there, there's always going to be some error that sneaks in, even in, in, uh, books that are published by Simon and Schuster or, you know, in fact, we have, there's, there's some, uh, self-published authors that have different Facebook groups. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they love to do is, is highlight, uh, in like a mass paperback and they'll like show you the errors on the page and they'll say, oh, you know, uh, JK Rowling has an error on this page. And, and they do it in a sense to highlight that it's perfection is not, you know, feasible in many ways. The perfectionism is, is usually based in fear. And so you're using it as a reason to put off the ultimate goal, which is to publish or to create because you want it to be for perfect. I did that for many years and it's, it's, it's super counterproductive because you're saying, no, it has to be just right, but you don't know what just right is until you release it into the world and get feedback. Yes. And sometimes the feedback can be very uh, brutal. You know, sometimes people, I wonder, I wonder what these people do for a living. It's like they, they leave these very, very, de- very detailed critiques. And I'm like, you know, other people, they read it, they enjoyed it. They say, Hey, I found this and this, but overall, you know, really it was very good. Mm-hmm. And then somebody will say, you know, this, this verb tense was wrong. And they have like a, you know, 500 word mini essay. And I'm like, uh, so the, of the book. And, uh, I don't know if it's like a, what do they call it? A obsessive compulsive disorder. Like they can't get beyond that particular error, but, yeah. um, it can be harsh. And that's something that, you know, writers have to, to deal with. I mean, you just have to get used to that. Yeah. Do you, does it get better or do you finally reach a place where it doesn't matter anymore after a certain number or is it always something that stings? Um, I think it stings in the early days. Like I have one book, um, it's, it has the most reviews so far. It has 115 mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, this, these are academic oriented books, you know, so I'm not, they're, they're not like, uh, uh, Dracula mermaids, you know, romance or something <laughs> like that, that have, you know, thousands of readers. Right. So if you have 115 reviews, that's, that's a lot, you know, everyone is important. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, and I remember, uh, for that particular title, I, I had something like five reviews and then one of them was just terrible because of, of, of the typo issue. And this person just was fixated on that. In some sense, it's good because it reminds you of the permit, right? You remember what you did wrong and then continually try to, uh, improve that. So now do you do everything you, you self write, you self publish, you self edit, everything like that? Uh, yes. I, in the beginning, I, especially for secret Jews, I actually, uh, used uh, proofreaders and editors mm-hmm. I actually paid them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found is that when I got it, when I got the, the chapter back that I would send them and then I would send it to my professors, they would mark it up and find all kinds of issues with it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm paying a person, you know, for me, it was quite a bit of money mm-hmm. to do this. And yet my professors, I, I don't know if they have like different senses of grammar or uh, they had just been doing it for a long time, but mm-hmm. they would find all these errors. And I'm like, I, I don't understand, you know, what, what's the point of that? So I, I adopted a different strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may not work for everybody. I, I do use Grammarly quite mm-hmm. extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, I do try to have a few people read it. 
the, okay. the difficulty with that is, you know, some people have arc teams, you know, these initial advanced review um, groups. Yeah. Um, but, for, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't easy for me to build that. And I'm like, if I have to wait for that, I'm not, I'm not going to get these done. Um, so I would, I would give out copies and then as I got feedback, I would update the manuscript, but I said, I'm going to, I'm going to push forward and I'm going to, you know, see what we see what happens. And usually it's, it's, uh, it's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Grammarly has been very effective and then occasionally, um, you know, I'll have a friend say, Hey, you know, I, I found a couple things, but they'll be relatively minor. And then I'll, I'll be able to update those as they, as they appear. And even, even Amazon now. Um, they have, they, they sort of upgraded their, their Kindle system and they'll actually say, we found what we think is an error. The fact that they're highlighting them, it gives me like another ability to, oh, okay, yeah, that, that is what I meant to say. Or, oh, you know, I, I should have transliterated that in a different way uh, mm-hmm. to make it more readable for the, for the person that's reading the book. So I, I think in that sense, um, you know, there's more tools available. There's a little bit more. Uh, a bit, you know, opportunity to to correct those things. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like Amazon's own version of Grammarly is now incorporated. Yes. Okay. Cool. So if you were to take on a student, a protege per se, someone who you know should be writing books but isn't writing books, how would you guide them through the process from creation, you know, starting to create it to the point where they could publish? What would what would you have them do? I think that I would. Encourage them to find a writer that they they want to emulate or they feel that they're most connected to, um, and not to copy them, but to see you know their their style and and what they're trying to achieve. And uh, then I would you know focus on that side, but I would also emphasize you know that the social media aspect and having a plan for how they're going to market that work. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I would give them a list of sites that have been beneficial to me or, um, you know, they, they give you a little bit of benefit, but they may not necessarily be the best. Uh, they, they can't do it just one, not one and done. You have to almost develop a schedule where every few months you're going to run a sale, uh, you're going to write an article about it. Uh, you've got to do something because you've got to keep this material uh, available to new readers, and um, you know, potentially, if you if you write something new, you sort of highlight what you've done in the past, and that's sort of the way to build uh, some type of following. Uh, even though it, it it hasn't been easy for me, but um, you know, it's it's just something that has to be uh, a process that you do over time. So now you wrote this this Secret Jews in 2016. We're going into 2022. It still sells well for you. Do you foresee that in another five to 10 years, this book will still be one of your main sellers? Um, I think so. Although I think that by that time, um, it would be helpful to do like a revision of the book, mm-hmm. uh, maybe add in another chapter or, you know, something of that nature that keeps it up to date. Um, the, the other book that I had mentioned, Forgotten Origins, um, I've already been thinking about that. Um, you know, you, you do additional research and you say, oh, I didn't, I didn't even think of that when I was writing the book. Um, maybe I don't, maybe I don't have the same view that I did before. Um, you know, there are ways to keep the initial material and then maybe you add it in the footnotes or you, or you provided another, an addendum to the, yeah. to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you feel like it's, it's, it's being maintained up to date. It's like a textbook, right? Right. So I think you've, you've got to make a determination if it's, if it's fiction, that's different, right? Because that can be timeless. But if you're writing history or 
something of that nature, you've, you've got to probably update it every, I don't, I don't know what the, you know, the, the magic number is, but every certain number of years, you've got to maybe provide a revision or maybe even a, a new cover, something like that, that, that gives it like a sense of being refreshed. And so do you think that paperback or hardcover copies are the best way to go or would Kindle be the best way to go? Well, Kindle without question has been the majority of sales that I have you know, gotten. I think audiobooks, I think, are the other vehicle uh, that people have to explore. Um, I think it's good to have hardback and paperback because some people like to have something physical. Uh, you know, and and like me, when I when I buy a book, if it's research, I, I like to write in it, I make notes in it, I highlight it. Um, some people they just want the ease of having their entire library on on their your Kindle or, or their Nook. Right. Um, so I think if, if you're doing that, you have to include Kindle as an option. If it's just, you know, you, you're writing something because you need to write it, um, you know, maybe just a, a paperback might be sufficient. But I think it's going to limit the, the readership that you have because, you know, the great thing about Amazon, what, whatever deficiencies Amazon may have, you know, it has a global reach. Mm-hmm. And so somebody in Japan or Germany can be reading your Kindle book um, Immediately, right? They purchase yeah. it, they downloaded it, it's there. If they yeah. order it, you know, who, who knows how long it's going to take. Yeah, that's, um, that's that instant gratification. I think that people are looking for. But yeah, I, I would say that you have to do that as as one one uh, vehicle, you know, okay. for your, your material. So now you've written not only um, academic works and religious focused works, but you've also written fiction, which which I thoroughly enjoyed. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, it, in many ways, it's. It, you know, I personally have found it more difficult to write the fiction mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I was trained in an academic setting, but I've always loved, uh, of course, movies and, and certain genres of fiction. And uh, several years ago, I, I came across a program that we've talked about before, uh, the, the Last Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the story of, of a boy who was a Saxon and he was, um, you know, his father was killed by the Vikings and they, they, they raise him as one of their own mm-hmm. or they rear him as one of their own. And, and he's tied again to this dual identity. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it was almost like, oh, this is, this is what I write about, you know, okay. identity, secret Jews, you know. Yeah. And so I just really connected with that series. And then it made me think about uh, biblical figures. Mm-hmm. You know, what ideas can I sort of draw from that? And then, you know, of course, make it my own and, right. and make it something unique. And I think right. for me, um, you know, it hasn't, I, I have to be honest, I haven't, it, it's not, uh, it's not on the top tier of, of my, my sales, but okay. I've enjoyed it because I sort of have put into it a lot of personal events. Hmm. Um, and I named the characters, as you know, after my, my boys. Um, you know, when I, when I lost my mother, I, I, I wrote that into the story. And it was part of that, uh, you know, catharsis. Uh, it was, uh, you know, to, to t- t- talk about something, um, but also maybe like all the emotions I have uh, about something that's that tragic but i can i can relate it to them in a story and and now my oldest son is is almost at the point where he could probably read that um and it's sort of interesting you know because he sees his name in it um and um i put certain character traits of of each of my boys uh so it's like it's very personal in that sense and even if if it doesn't become as successful as the other titles um in many ways it's like something very unique to me you know I, I, i really put everything into that yeah yes so do you foresee yourself continuing the series? Can you tell us the name of the series and what it, what it actually, the premise is? 
Yes. So the, the series is, is uh, titled The Chronicles of Canaan, and then each one has a, a subtitle. Um, and it begins with a boy who's, um, I think he's like something like five or six when the story starts. Um, he has an Israelite father who's married a Canaanite uh, woman. But he grows up at a time when you have the Philistines, when you have all these different tribes that are uh, threatening the, uh, the 12 tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right about when Saul and David come onto the scene. Um, and the reason I came up with this idea is because there's, um, there's a group of individuals that supported David called the Mighty Men of David. That's typically what most people know them by. And I found the name of an individual, uh, Eliel. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, we named our, our first son after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started thinking, you know, how can I tell the story of the, of the rise of Saul, of the first king of Israel, but like from an outsider's perspective, you know, because um, when we read the Bible, sometimes, you know, the Bible provides us limited information, right? It's, it has a, di- a different uh, agenda and in many ways, a different purpose. Mm-hmm. trying to convey certain ideas but i thought what about if i tell like a background story of, of how it might have been um and then it also serves like to educate people like well this is what happened in on in daily israelite life mm-hmm. and these are the struggles they had and these are the weapons and and you know these are the challenges that they had and so it traces his growth you know as a little boy um and then he becomes a, a you know, teenager and then eventually you know he'll continue to grow so i, I would like to continue the series just because I, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I, I look back and I, I, I remember that I included a certain joke or something like that. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that, you know, that was pretty funny. I mean, it might not be funny to anybody else, but um, it sort of encapsulates my, my personality. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's something unique I can give to my kids. And, um, you know, it's just something like, a, it's just a personal thing. I enjoyed it. And I could, I could see future chapters there, you know, over time. It's not like mm-hmm. a priority, but I, I could see, you know, continuing that story. There are a number of authors that I've followed since my teens, you know, and I may not have read every single work that they put out, but it's like when you need something to read, or if you're at the airport and you, you know, you don't have anything in hand, you'll, you'll easily go and reach for that favorite author, you know, because they just have so many books in that series that they've put out. So I've always, I've always looked at the Chronicles of Canaan of being something like that to many people, you know, mm. once, once it's discovered by a larger mass, it'll be one of these things where people are like, oh, there's a new one out, you know, I just feel that way about that series because I, I enjoyed it so much that I, I actually told my sons, you have to read this book, right? And, and they're like, okay, I mean, I'm like, no, did you read it yet? Did you read it yet? Because I just enjoyed it so much. I knew they would enjoy it, you know? And then when they did, they came back to me, they was like, ah, that book is great, you know? And so the, I know that we've discussed in the past with the idea of making it into a graphic novel to reach a broader audience. What, where are you with that? Um, I've done some research on that. Um, it's extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's really the prohibitive a- aspect to it. I mean, I, I think it would be great. I think the story is like a great story. I, mm-hmm. I really, um, I agree. You know, for me, the book is, is interesting because it, it teaches you history and, you know, if you're not careful, you'll learn a lot about you know ancient uh, Israel and <laughs> yeah. the Bible, and it, 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 and 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 I think the other thing that I liked about it, if I can say, you know, I use people in my life, mm-hmm. you know, um, and as you know, you you actually appear in it as well. But sometimes you realize that people aren't one dimensional. You know, they 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 they're just many sides to one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you, it just to me that was like also 
you know, I, as an engineer, I guess in many ways I felt like I was trained to be very ABC, you know, categorical, but they also have this other side and, and, uh, they're just not, they're not one dimensional. And I, I don't think I've, I've learned to develop that fully, but I can see like the elements of that. And it's like, oh, they're, they're real people. And I could really see somebody saying that I could say, oh yeah, they, they said something like this. Of course, I, I might've changed a little bit, but, mm-hmm. um, you can see the, the voices of the people like in the conversations and, uh, that that to me has been very uh, interesting. So now, whether it's your your fictional works or your more academic works, what do you find to be the greatest challenge to to your writing? Well, I would say that uh, the greatest challenge to me is not so much in the writing, but it's in the marketing mm. because it almost become. I feel like it becomes like a, I can do one or the other. Mm. I don't. I don't have enough time to manage the campaigns effectively enough to to grow the audience to another level mm-hmm. um, i mean i've tried a lot of different things but you get to a point where if you focus in on one thing you neglect the other right uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean you're not selling it doesn't mean that you're not getting more readers but um it's just hard you know if, if you don't I, I don't know what the threshold is but some people they reach the thresh, threshold and then it's like they've transformed their life you know because uh um they're, they're getting a, uh, a real income from this writing and now they, they have the ability to do both. But when you're carrying a baby and you know, you're, you're typing and, and you've got a, your other job and your other kids, it's like, you've got limited time. And yeah. um, I would say that that's probably the biggest hurdle. And I think it's probably most people because I look back and look at the number of books I've sold and it's like, wow, that's, it's, it's a very impressive number, mm-hmm. uh, certainly within the, these genres, but, you know, in order to reach that other level, you know, I've got to, you know, double it or triple it or something like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's the, the difficulty and the challenge. Okay. So we've, we've taken up a good amount of your time, Rabbi. I would like for you to um, tell us where we can find you. What would you like us to leave this, this interview with? You know, my audience is an entrepreneurial audience. I, I thought, you know, it would be great for them to hear about the business of of writing and publishing from someone as successful as yourself and who's experienced. So what would you like them to take away from this? Well, I will, I'll share with you a personal story. Back in uh, 2004, um, I had just finished a master's degree in Jewish studies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, you know, the world was very different in 2004 as, as far as self-publishing was concerned. Mm-hmm. But I had written a little book that would become forgotten origins, you know, many years later mm-hmm. and I self-published it and I shared it to one of my engineering bosses. And at the time I had sold five copies and, uh, he laughed at me mm-hmm. and, uh, he told a, another engineer, he said, oh, he sold five copies and they, and they both laughed at me. And that, and that, that moment stayed with me all these years. Mm-hmm. And, um, earlier this year, I'm, I'm going to do a recount. Um, earlier this year, I, I sort of tabulated the sales from 2016 to 2021 and it was more than 26,000 uh, books. And that particular book, you know, the one that he, that he laughed at that became a much larger work um, has sold more than 5,000 copies. And in the academic arena, you know, that's not typical. You know, if, right. if you get to 10,000, that's like a major superstar. But if you sell 5,000, that's, that's very respectable. It's on the charts, you know, it's in the, it's in the uh, Jewish history of religion bestsellers. It's, uh, I've got, you know, five to 10 books that appear on there Mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon is always, you know, changing that uh, algorithm, but they're there, they're there, you know, they might switch around, but, mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I think about that. It's like the, the idea of persistence, you know, there are going to be people who might be detractors. You know, he, my, my boss at the time could have said, oh, that's, that's fascinating. You know, really wish you well. Uh, but he just mocked, he just laughed. Yeah. And, um, it, it was, it was very hurtful, but it was also like a, like a little bit of a challenge. And, uh, for many years I, I didn't write, I mean, I had to write for school, but I didn't contemplate the idea of writing, you know, you know, on that level. Mm-hmm. And then I think at some point you just say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I think that's what I want to leave people with this idea of tenacity mm-hmm. and, and the hope, you know, that if you, if you, if you work at it, you may not become JK Rowling, but you can become successful, you know, mm-hmm. with it in particular uh, niche or, or genre. Mm-hmm. He, he poured gas on the fire. I, I wish I had his address. I would send him like a copy of every book. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, it, maybe even dedicated to him. You know, dedicate a future volume, you know, to uh, inspiration. But uh, yeah. I thought that was, I think that's a very good story. That's great. From five copies to best-selling author and multiple books. It doesn't get better than that. Where can, where can the audience find you and follow you, Rabbi? Um, they can either go to uh, Amazon.com and they can type my name. Uh, there's an author page there, or they can go to Modern M O D E R N uh, hyphen or dash scribe uh, S C R I B E dot com. Um, there's a free book on Sephardic history they can pick up, um, and then it lists. I have a blog there uh, that I'm developing, mm-hmm. and it lists all my titles and things that I'm working on. So that's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for, you know, giving us your time and imparting your wisdom to us. And I hope to have you on the show again soon. We'll talk about some other topics that I know you're very knowledgeable in as well. Well, thank you. Thank you, Art. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi. 